Uh, thanks so much, Pauline, for reading that for us. Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Uh, Father, thank you so much that you've given us your word. Thank you that we can see how the whole story of the Bible is fulfilled in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of your promises find their yes and amen in him. And so we, we pray this morning that as we think about that a bit more together, please would you work powerfully by your Holy Spirit to strengthen and encourage our faith in him, that we would not stumble but receive the blessing of eternal life that he has promised. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How do you respond when things in your life don't quite meet your expectations? Uh, perhaps you bought something online, but the actual product doesn't really resemble the thing that you thought you were buying. That happened to me a few years back. I tried to buy Rach a thoughtful wedding anniversary present, some sweet pea flowers for our silk wedding anniversary. I think that was num number five. And in the pictures, they looked tall and elegant and lifelike. The reality, sadly, was that they were very small and very fake looking. And so they live high up in a hard-to-see place in our house, out of sight and out of mind. Maybe uh, you bought a pizza from the supermarket, but it didn't have those lovely, tasty little pieces of pepperoni that the box advertised. Or maybe it was a TV series or a film that your friends raved about, but when you watched it, you were like totally underwhelmed. Like, what? This is terrible. How, how do you respond when things don't meet your expectations? I guess you might take the product back or put it on a shelf high up away. You might be less likely to try out your friend's recommendations in the future. But what about when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do then? That's the situation that John the Baptist is in in our passage today. Um, we're going to look at how Jesus, what, what Jesus says to John. So here's the first thing um, that, we, that we see Jesus says. Don't stumble over Jesus. Don't stumble over Jesus. The last time we met John the Baptist was back in Luke chapter 3. Back then, John was the on fire for God, fiery preacher of repentance. And I mean, John was all out for Jesus. From the womb, even before he was born, John has been joyfully anticipating the coming of Jesus. He leapt with joy in his mother's womb when Mary announced her pregnancy. When John grew up, he sold his possessions. He gave up his secure job. He lived a simple lifestyle away from everyone out in the wilderness and became a preacher. He preached a baptism of repentance, turning away from sin to God. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was preparing the people for their coming king. John, you remember, he was the one who baptized Jesus. 
He saw the Spirit descend on Jesus in body form like a dove. He heard the Father's voice. This is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. But now, here in chapter 7, John just doesn't seem quite so sure anymore, does he? Now, if I were writing a gospel, I would probably have left something like this out. It's just embarrassing, isn't it? One of your main supporting cast suddenly struck with doubts and questions. But Luke includes it. It's just another piece of evidence that this is a reliable eyewitness account. And you can see John's question in verses 19 and 20. We get it twice because it's a really important question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? In other words, John John is asking, are you the Messiah, Jesus? Are you the king that God promised us? Or did we get it wrong? Should we be looking elsewhere? It seems a surprising question, doesn't it, to be coming from John of all people. Why the sudden doubt? And Luke doesn't tell us for sure, but let me just suggest a couple of possible factors. First of all, think about where John the Baptist is right now. He is locked up, languishing in Herod's prison. See, his preaching of repentance to prepare the way for Jesus cost him. It cost him his freedom, and ultimately it cost John his life. And and think as well about the message that John preached. When John preached about the coming Messiah, this is what he said. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's expectations for Jesus come in two parts, salvation and judgment. See that, right? The Messiah will save. He's going to baptize with the Spirit, bringing God's forgiveness and love and life to repentant sinners, establishing the reign of God, gathering the righteous wheat into the barn of his eternal kingdom. He's going to save, and he's going to judge, burning the chaff, the unrepentant religious deadwood with unquenchable fire, bringing God's judgment on God's enemies. And as John the Baptist hears about Jesus' miracles in, in prison in verse 18, Jesus is only fulfilling 50% of his expectations. Where's the judgment, Jesus? And that's personal for John. It's not an abstract question that's deeply personal because you can imagine him thinking, I thought you were going to judge God's enemies like, you know, like Herod. But here I am, still locked up in prison, about to get my head chopped off. I I thought you were meant to be proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, but I'm sat, imprisoned, in darkness. Your salvation has extended to save a Roman centurion servant from death, but what about me? And what are the Romans still doing here anyway? I thought you were going to rid 
the evil oppressors. And so you can see that the doubts are coming up in his mind, aren't they? Did I get it wrong? Is Jesus the one to come? Maybe he's not. Maybe we should be looking somewhere else. At this point, I just want to point out that experiencing those kinds of doubts and questions, wrestling with those things, is normal. It's normal. If John the Baptist, the greatest prophet ever, according to Jesus in verse 28, can have doubts like that, do not be surprised if at some point in your Christian life you do too. Remember that, that's the very reason Luke wrote this gospel. So that Theophilus could have certainty about the things he'd been taught, presumably because he he needed reassurance. I also just want to point out that those doubts and questions, they are just much more likely to arise if your experience of following Jesus is somehow just not quite what you expected. Perhaps he is allowing you to suffer in ways that you thought he would protect you from. Perhaps he's allowing ongoing health issues to continue in ways you thought he would heal you from. Perhaps he is not removing a difficult situation from your life that you have pleaded with him to take away. Perhaps he is not answering your prayers for your friend or family member or for yourself in the ways that you wanted or expected. It's those things that, like John, can cause us to doubt Jesus, to second-guess ourselves. And I, I just want you to be prepared for that. Now, I want to encourage you to do your best to let the Bible shape your expectations of what following Jesus will be like. But even still, at some point, Jesus will not meet your expectations. Be prepared for that. And what matters then is not whether or not you have doubts, but what you do with them. That's the thing that matters. And John takes his questions to Jesus. And we have to do the same. And I I just want you to notice as well, Jesus isn't offended by John's question. He doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't get all defensive. No, Jesus is so patient and kind. He just simply says to John, listen, Remember what the Bible says. See what I've done. Be blessed. Jesus' reply in verse 22 is very simple, isn't it? Go back, says to John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus gives John the evidence of his works, some of them even performed in the presence of these two disciples, right there and then in verse 21. And Jesus is inviting John to reflect on those works in light of the Old Testament. Because the the second part of Jesus' response, where he lists all those different works, it's a patchwork quilt of 
Old Testament passages from the prophet Isaiah, sort of all rolled up into one. Passages like Isaiah 35. You might want to turn to this one. If you still get your Bible open, if it's a church one, it's page 720. This might help you to see this. Uh, page 720. Just keep your finger in Luke 7. And it's Isaiah 35. This is what uh, Isaiah promised. Uh, I'll pick it up at verse 3. Uh, Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. You see what Jesus is hinting at there when he gives that reply to John. Jesus is doing the works Isaiah said the Messiah would do when he came. Actually, more than that, Jesus is doing the works Isaiah said would happen when God came. If you remember at the end of last week's passage in verse 16, The people are filled with awe when Jesus raises the widow's son from death. And they say, wow, a great prophet has arisen among us. But you can see, can't you? Their categories for Jesus are way too small. This man is not a prophet, even a great prophet. He is way more than that. His works speak for themselves. Jesus' unique power, it points to his unique person. His miracles show he is the one. He is the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom, God himself. And he has come, just as as the prophets promised, to save. As Jesus said in the synagogue back in Luke 4, when he was again quoting Isaiah, He's come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you remember when when Jesus quotes that passage, he stops there. He doesn't include the next bit of Isaiah's promise about the day of vengeance. It's not that Jesus won't judge. Jesus' reply here, it's not denying that there will ever be a coming judgment. John is not wrong. He's not wrong in his expectation that Jesus will judge, only when Jesus will judge. John's just got his timing wrong. Because now, with the first coming of Christ, this is the year of the Lord's favor. The time for forgiveness and salvation. The day of vengeance of our God will come, but it awaits the second coming of Jesus. Is Jesus the one? Yeah. Just read Isaiah. Then read Luke's gospel. Put the two together. What that means for you is that you need to make your mind up about Jesus. Uh, This passage, it is showing us who Jesus is. But this passage, it is as much about us and our response to Jesus as it is about Jesus and who he is. 
Jesus' works are a reliable historical record. His work, his works speak for themselves. And so the ball's in your court. What will you make of Jesus? What will you do with him? How will you respond to him? If you're here and you're not sure, we would love to help you to figure out the answer to that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please take this one that is in front of you or behind you or next to you and take it home as a gift from our church family to you. And read it. If you'd like help, if you'd like to chat through your questions with someone who's do that, please come and chat to me afterwards. We'd love to help you think about that for yourself. Jesus' encouragement is to reflect on his works in light of the Old Testament promises. And it comes with a wonderful promise in verse 23. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, trust Jesus and you will be blessed. And don't give up trusting Jesus even when things don't make sense, even when Jesus is not meeting your expectations, because it will be worth it in the end. But verse 23 is also a warning. Because there are those who stumble over Jesus. We're going to meet them at the end of the passage. There are some who are offended by Jesus, who are scandalized by Jesus in his message, who, who trip up over a crucified king who just doesn't meet their expectations. As the Apostle Paul writes, the words of which are above me, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. The message of the cross is a stumbling block. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the message of the gospel, Jesus' message the message of Christ crucified, is that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. And you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. Some people stumble over that. Especially the first part. But please don't be offended by that. Be humbled by it, yes. But then trust Jesus and be blessed by it because you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. You are so loved that he was glad to. Don't stumble over Jesus. Then in, in verses 24 to 28, Jesus gives us another reason not to doubt who he is, not to stumble over him, but to trust him. To trust that he really is who he says he is. And it's the ministry of John the Baptist himself. So John's disciples have gone and Jesus turns to the crowd and he speaks to them. And he asks them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? You know, a massive crowd flocked into the desert wilderness to see John. There must have been something worth seeing. What was it? Did you go out for the scenery? To see a, a reed swaying in the wind? They were not there for the scenery. Well then, uh, did you go out to see the latest fashion trends on display on the desert catwalk? No. They were not there to see fine clothes. John dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt. If you want to see fine clothes, you go to the palace, not to the wilderness. So what then? What was that massive crowd doing in the wilderness? 
they went to see a prophet. That's the only explanation for a big crowd in the wilderness listening to a man dressed in camel's hair. They were listening to a prophet. They knew John was a prophet, and not just any prophet. The prophet, the one promised by God who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Verse 28, John, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Jesus is again quoting from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And there, it is the Lord God Almighty speaking directly. And what he says is, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. John is the prophet who prepares the way for the Messiah. Yes, but more than that, who prepares the way for the coming of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. John really was that messenger. That's what Jesus is saying. And therefore, Jesus really is that Messiah. He is the Lord God himself who has come to rescue and to save his people. So don't just look at Jesus' works. Look at John's too. Both John and Jesus together, they testify to the truth that Jesus really is the one. According to Jesus, John the Baptist was the last and therefore the greatest prophet, the greatest man who had ever lived up to that time because he had that unique privilege of being the direct forerunner to Jesus himself. But what Jesus says in verse 28 is that if you're a Christian, your privilege is even greater than John's. The one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he is. Why? Because you know more of Jesus than John ever could. Jesus is not saying John's not in the kingdom. He is. But John is saved as someone who was still looking forward to Jesus' salvation. But we are saved as those who know the reality of Jesus' salvation through his death on the cross and his resurrection. John looked forward to the forgiveness of sins coming through Jesus. We experience it. John looked forward to that baptism of the Holy Spirit. We experience it. John looked forward to the coming of God's kingdom. We are in it. That's the blessing that Jesus offers. Because he is the one. The Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. God himself. His works speak for themselves. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Don't stumble over Jesus. And secondly, don't reject God's purpose for you. Verse 29 to 35, don't reject God's purpose for you. Here's what we've seen so far in chapter 7. Jesus can save you from death. That's what we saw last week in those two stories. And he offers that salvation for free to anyone by grace, through faith in him. And Jesus really is the one who can do that. He really is the one bringing God's salvation. His works speak for themselves. John role, John's role as the, the prophet proves it, which raises a massive question, doesn't it? Why isn't everyone flocking to Jesus to receive that salvation? Why are there still people who stumble over Jesus? Why are there some who reject Jesus. 
But the surprise actually goes even deeper still because in verses 29 to 35, it's the very people that we should expect to be able to recognize Jesus who reject him. That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 29 and 30. Most of the ordinary people, the sinners, even the tax collectors, they had been baptized by John. They recognized John was a prophet. They recognized their own need to repent, to receive God's forgiveness, but not the religious leaders. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they're the theologians and the preachers of the day. They just went out and they stood back. They rejected John's baptism, and in doing so, they rejected God's purpose for them. And that same rejection they had to John, it continues in their rejection towards Jesus. And what Jesus wants to do in this last bit, he wants to expose the reason for their rejection. Because they're hiding behind their excuses. Jesus wants to expose the reason for their rejection. And so he tells this little story about children playing in the marketplace. So uh, for us, you know, think about the school playground. That's what we're, we're picturing. And first of all, the children want to play weddings. This actually is one of Lydia's favorite games in our house. We've been to lots of weddings as a family, and Lydia loves them. So in our house, very often, Lydia likes to get dressed up in one of her pretty dresses, and then usually she and I get married, and Chloe is the church leader. Now, I know there is all sorts going wrong with that. As Lydia has to remind me, that's okay, it's just a game. So anyway, the children in Jesus' story, they want to play weddings, and they start playing the pipe. You know, it's the reception. You know, come and join in and dance and, and celebrate. But there's a group of grumpy kids in the corner who refuse to join in. Now, this game, it's too joyful for us. We don't want to play weddings. Okay, so the children, no problem. Let's play funerals instead, which admittedly we don't play as often in our house. But in the first century, they're big family events, just like weddings are, so you, you play the game. So they start to sing a dirge. They say, come on, mourn and cry with us. But the group of grumpy kids in the corner still don't want to play. No, we don't want to play this game. This game's too sad for us. See, there's just no pleasing some people. Like the British with the weather, I know not all of you are British, but like the British with the weather, we complain when August is cold and rainy, and then we complain when September is hot and sunny. It's just no pleasing some people. Actually, all that goes to show is the problem is not with the weather, but with the British. We just love to complain about it. And it's the same with the Pharisees. Like grumpy children, like spoiled brats, there is no pleasing them. Jesus' little story, it exposes the problem isn't really with John and with Jesus. The problem's with them. See, Jesus says, um, John the Baptist, he came neither eating nor drinking. And they rejected him. He was much too sad for them. So then Jesus came eating and drinking, but they rejected him too. Too joyful. See, they reject both the one who came fasting and the one who came feasting. One as a demon and the other is a glutton. Well, hang on a minute. You can't reject John for not eating and drinking and then reject Jesus for eating and drinking. You can't do that. It doesn't make sense. But that's just the thing, isn't it? Deep down, why did they reject John's baptism? It wasn't because of his fasting. It was because of his preaching. 
John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the Pharisees refused to admit that they were sinners in need of repentance. They were complacent. They had this smug satisfaction. They thought, well, we've got nothing to repent of. The religious leaders, they hated the fact that Jesus offered salvation by grace. They wanted it to be by works. They hated the idea of having to ask Jesus for mercy. They wanted to do it on their own merit. And so they stumbled over Jesus. They stumbled over the message of the cross because they couldn't face that fact that they were so sinful, Jesus had to die for them. They rejected John and they rejected Jesus too. Because Jesus' message was the same. Repentance, turn from your sin, admit that you've sinned, say sorry to God, turn to him and ask for his forgiveness. See, the reason they reject, it's not a lack of evidence or anything like that. They just don't think they need Jesus. So they make their excuses. Glutton, drunkard, demon, friend of tax collector sinners, but that's not the reason. The reason is a simple refusal to repent. They reject Jesus not so much because he doesn't meet their expectations. He's just not what they wanted. And in doing so, in rejecting Jesus, they reject God's purpose for them. Please don't make their mistake. Please don't make their mistake. God's purpose for you is to trust in his son, to receive his forgiveness, and be welcomed into his family. Don't reject his purpose for you. Be wise. Don't let your expectations of what you think Jesus should be like govern your decision about him. See what Jesus says about himself and respond accordingly because in the end, those who choose Jesus, the way of wisdom, will be proved right. They will be blessed. So don't stumble over Jesus. Don't reject God's purpose for you. Instead, receive the blessing, the salvation that he offers through repentance and faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that uh, Jesus really is exactly what the Pharisees say at the end of that passage. Thank you that Jesus really is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we thank you so much for that because that means Jesus wants to be our friend. Thank you that Jesus came for people like us, for sinners. And we pray, Lord, for your help not to stumble over that message. Not to reject your purpose for us. But to repent, to turn from our sin, to say sorry to you. 
and to humbly receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can give us. Thank you that he is who he says he is. Please give us confidence to trust him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand. And